Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you a glimpse of some of the great research being done by folks using the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center. One such researcher is joining me today. Cody Patton is a PhD candidate at Ohio State University, and we're going to be discussing his dissertation project titled Nature's Brew, an Environmental History of American Brewing. Cody, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. Let's sort of start by painting in broad strokes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your dissertation project? What is it you're researching and writing about? Yeah, so I guess I should start with how I even kind of settled on the topic of tree to begin with. So I grew up uh, in Utah, which uh, has kind of a, a national reputation for a strange relationship with alcohol. The, the states had some pretty funky uh, beer laws, and it's just or alcohol laws, and it's just like drinking is not really a part of the culture as much as other states. And so, kind of growing up in that milieu. Uh, when I got to undergrad I, at Utah State University, I hired to work in the special collections at, at the university, and we had a brewing company collection. And so as a student employee, I got to go through and process some new materials for that collection uh, and eventually curate an exhibit on it uh, kind of for display in the, in the library there. And the brewery is from my own hometown, uh, Bogdan, Utah. They're one of just a handful of breweries that operated both before, during, and after Prohibition. And it was just really interesting to kind of learn this bit of local history and then also learn how significant this one kind of regional brewing company was to this larger, you know, history of, uh, of beer in the United States. I mean, only like 200 companies or something like that made it all the way through, you know, Prohibition. And, and to the fact that one of them was in Utah was incredibly interesting to me. And so I ended up writing kind of my senior thesis on the history of this company and then that's, I took that project to grad school with me, uh, where I've now become really interested and enmeshed in kind of the world of environmental history, which has changed the trajectory of my project from just being a traditional business history to being uh, more focused on, well, what are the environmental kind of impacts of this industry? How does, you know, non-human factors impact the development of the industry? Uh, and so my what I'm trying to do with my dissertation is is write like a more than human history of beer. So I'm very interested in how environmental history we, we see the non-human as having agency in history. And so what are the unique factors of yeast, barley, hops that kind of contribute to the way the American brewing industry developed uh, really since the, the 1870s to the craft beer revolution. And so what I've been doing is uh, picking, I've been picking an ingredient and writing a chapter on it. So, so far I've focused on yeast, uh, on barley. Uh, I've got a chapter on the kind of development of the tin can because beer was actually the first canned beverage, um, you know, even before soda, which I found to be very interesting. Uh, and then eventually I'll also write a chapter on hops and probably water. Um, that's kind of coming down the pipeline. So we'll see what happens with that. But so that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and then if, if you want, I can talk more details about the chapters, but that's kind of the big, the big broad picture of, of how I got here and, and where I'm at. So. 
Oh, well, it sounds like a really fascinating topic, and I really like the way you framed it. Um, perhaps you can explain what put Hagley on your radar and um, how the collections here are helping you to uncover this story. Yeah, so obviously, you know, the Hagley is, is a great place to do business history. The collections are just incredibly diverse, and, and it's great, the material that they have there. And, and one thing that's been incredibly helpful uh, that the Hagley has is uh, trade journals for the brewing industry. So they have, uh, oh, I guess you guys have uh, almost a full run of the American Brewer uh, digitized, which has been kind of the backbone of a lot of my research. Uh, there's other ones too, like the Brewer and Maltster, which are incredibly helpful. And then just all kinds of trade publications. So there's annual reports from brewing firms, malting firms, kind of promotional material from these corporations. Uh, and that's all been very helpful to kind of look through and see like, okay, what are these, what are the brewers talking about? What issues are they having with their supply? Uh, and that's really where the trade journals come in. And that's like my advisor, he basically said, go, go and see if you can find like an issue that they're, they're grabbing. One, for instance, with the barley stuff, I found that, um, really right before prohibitions, so like 1910, 1911, there was a massive drought in the upper Midwest, barley prices skyrocketed. So they were kind of complaining about malt being ridiculously expensive. And then again, the same thing happens immediately after repeal in the 1930s with the, with the droughts. You know, it's not just the Southern Plains that are hit hard by these droughts and the Dust Bowl, you know, uh, in like North Dakota, there's like a 95% crop failure for barley uh, in 1934. And so, right before prohibition and immediately after the brewers are just really struggling to get affordable malt. Uh, and, and that's really a, a problem that the industry is trying to grapple with um, really in the 1940s and fifties. And so they actually create some like committees and their trade organizations to work with uh, like extension services in Wisconsin to go out and kind of teach these farmers how to grow the particular crops that they want and develop uh, different strains of barley that are, you know, work better for the brewer. And so that's one kind of interesting take that I found is that these, you know, these brewers, they really tried to um, make their business strategy work the way they wanted it to, regardless of if there was a drought or not. And they continued to kind of sell at volume, even though prices were increasing. And this just really slashed profit margins. And, and in what I found really adversely affected the smallest brewers, uh, whereas the large brewers were able to kind of absorb some of these losses due to the high material costs. And so it's an interesting way to see that like climate and industry, you know, when, when the climate is not conducive to your industry, it really has kind of profound impacts on, on business and, and which firms survive and which firms don't. And so I think, you know, in our current context of kind of global warming and climate change, you know, what can we learn from the past about industries that have had to go through a similar thing in the past and, and, Kind of what the research is showing is that when you know prices rise uh, the climate isn't conducive to kind of what you're used to you know it, it really shakes up and disrupts industry so that's that's one of the bigger takeaways i've gotten from my my barley chapter and and the material at the hagley has been i mean most of this has come from the trade journals because they're very much following the situation announcing you know oh we started this new barley school or we're giving away prizes to farmers who grow barley and, and then also the constant complaints of the prices being too high and, and things like that. So that's, that's all come from the trade journals at the Hagley. And so that, that's really been, I think, probably the, the number one thing that I found there. But 
I mean, again, there's just lots of interesting stuff um, to uh, that I found. What a rich resource. In that collection of trade journals, was there perhaps a, a particular issue um, or volume that when you read it, the light bulb went off and it was just a really exciting moment in the archive? Yeah, I don't have the exact, well, let me see. So one that I found uh, on this last trip, I was just at the Hagley a week ago, was in the Brewer and Maltster uh, volume 30, uh, which is from October 15th, 1911. Hmm. There's this uh, ag agricultural scientist that's speaking at the, uh, the national convention of the brewers. And he basically says that, um, let's see, where is it right here? Uh, the, the barley situation is, is like dire because the acreage has just been vastly reduced by the drought. And then also he's kind of castigating the brewers because he's saying, look, you guys, like you want barley to be as cheap as possible. Uh, malting barley but it's very hard to grow malt grade barley like the farmer really needs to take special care because if the product is not uh, harvested at the correct time uh, it, it's useless as malt if it's left in the field for too long also it like kind of overdevelops and it's not as useful for malt so like growing malt is an incredibly uh, time consuming and specialized product and and that's one thing where environmental history comes in I can like look at the kind of biological factors of barley and say like look this is important in the story if we don't if we don't say like look you know uh, barley doesn't just like appear you know it on paper it really is grown in the field it has its own unique conditions to thrive and things like that and so he's basically telling the brewers like look you need to just accept that this is an expensive specialty agricultural product if you want farmers to plant it you've got to pay the, the prices that they're asking otherwise they'll go grow something else that's a little bit easier and less time consuming. And so I found that to be very, very interesting. And, and the fact that, you know, I had kind of thought this was a 1930s story, uh, but then when I found it in the, in the teens, I was like, okay, there's a bigger history here of kind of supply issues when it comes to getting malt. And so that was kind of made me rethink of how I should address this chapter and maybe push it back further in time than I had originally thought. So that, that was a great time. Yeah, that is. And now, I think you've given us a pretty good sense of how barley intersects with this story. Maybe you could speak yeah. to um, some of the other ingredients. How about yeast? It's always struck me as really remarkable that we have this living organism directly involved in this industrial production of a consumer good. Um, could you maybe speak to that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So that that's actually the thing that I'm the most fascinated with too, is the yeast. Like I, um, you know, that, that chapter has taken me in some really unexpected directions. I've had to teach myself some microbiology, some <laughs> chemistry, which as a humanities person is like a little bit scary, but you know, we can do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that one thing that struck me is that really before the 1870s and the 1880s, brewers didn't really have a good concept of understanding of yeast. I mean, they knew empirically that like taking the, the yeasty foam from like one batch of beer and adding it so the, the next batch, you know, that would cause fermentation and cause beer. Uh, but there was like a huge debate until the 1860s of if yeast was drinkable fermentation or not, or if it was just a byproduct of fermentation. Uh, and so there was like a huge debate in the scientific community of like what even causes fermentation. And then Louis Pasteur actually proved that it was yeast. A uh, living organism, you know, was responsible for this chemical reaction, which a lot of uh, kind of 19th century just thought was ridiculous uh, 
Uh, and so it's not until 1857 that Pasteur kind of publishes those findings and these ideas start to, to kind of circulate. Uh, and then he kind of, again, approaches the brewing industry in the 1870s after France uh, lost the Franco-Prussian War. He was really jaded and wanted to kind of get back to back in Germany by having the French produce like a more high quality beer. <laughs> and so he found out that uh, not only does yeast cause fermentation, but other bacteria do. And so if you get um, some bacteria that aren't yeast in your, your work uh, to make your beer, they can actually ferment it. And then you get kind of an off tasting beer. And before the 18, I think he published that in 1876, before that brewers didn't know that bacteria would taint their beer. They thought it was something wrong with their like hops or malt or maybe something else. And so getting a standardized product uh, before this knowledge was, you know, really hard. I mean, brewers had brands, they were selling beer, but uh, I think Pasteur found that like 20% of or British firms lost about 20% of their annual output to kind of bacterial infection. So it's costing brewers a lot of money. And then finally in 1883, a Dutch or Danish scientist, Emil Hansen, uh, found that not only is there bacteria that can contaminate beer, but there's also wild species of yeast that can also contaminate beer. So really, it's not until 1883 um, that he, he realizes we need to use one specific species of yeast, and he isolates it. And then finally, you know, after that point, you can have one specific species of yeast. It's called a pure culture yeast. Uh, and, and then they use that for fermentation, which really allows these brewers that are on the cutting edge of kind of chemistry and biology to, to propagate one species of yeast, which then allows them to brew a fairly consistent batch of beer every single time they're brewing. And so yeast is really kind of the key to unlocking kind of standardization and mass production on, on a large scale. Um, you know, and of course, there's other technological innovations that are super important, uh, but they're tied into yeast. So like brewers always talk about, if you go to these trade journals, they say artificial refrigeration was like the thing that unlocked the ability to brew year round and brew consistently. Because before that, brewers are digging, you know, three story deep caves under their breweries. They're hauling in tons of ice, uh, natural ice that they cut from lakes and stuff to keep their brewing vats cold for the, the beer to lager, that they're brewing lager beer. Uh, but the reason that they need that ice is because of the yeast, like for the, the particular type of uh, lager yeast that they use, it needs the cold. And so artificial refrigeration, like, yes, it's super important, but it's important because it creates an, uh, an ideal climate or environment for the yeast to do its fermentation. So in that chapter, I kind of argue that, look, it's like, if, if we want to look at kind of the key to the point where like this, this mass industrialization of of beer, which is a very chemically sensitive beverage comes about, really it's, it's with this new understanding of yeast that really kind of allows these big firms to really start to, you know, produce a, a brand name product because if you want to have a brand, you know, it needs to be associated with quality uh, and, and consistency. And so having that pure yeast culture and, and combined with artificial refrigeration really allows them to do that in the 1880s and 1890s. So that's, that's kind of where yeast comes in. Yeah. And, uh, I, and oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, one, one last thing too, that I've kind of been exploring and really starting to think about is this new knowledge of yeast too, really empowers the, the chemist in the brewery over more like working class or brewers who have more traditional ideals. And so at the same time that you see the implementation of pure culture yeast, you also see the establishment of like brewing schools in the U S 
who began to train uh, brewmasters in this very particular way of thinking about beer. And, and that kind of, if, if you follow these people through the, the 1890s through the 1950s, you know, they've basically taken over all the breweries in the country. You know, if you're a brewmaster, you probably went to one of these brewing schools in Chicago or New York, and they're all starting to make like the same kind of beer using the same techniques. And then you get the, you know, homogenization of all beer, American beer basically tasting the same by the 50s. So that's another way that like yeast is involved in the standardization and things like that. So. Oh, what a fascinating story. And um, my understanding is today that there are uh, proprietary varieties of yeast, that there are commercial suppliers of these strain specific yeasts, that different craft breweries will often um, tr uh, trademark um, their own species or subspecies rather of, of yeast. When did that come into the industry? When were there these proprietary strains of yeast and particularly perhaps these suppliers of yeasts? Yeah, so the suppliers of yeast, I mean, they've been a long time. So these brewing schools that I started in like 1880s, 1890s, like the, there's the American Brewing Academy, uh, the Johnny Seibel Institute, which is still in business in Chicago, uh, and then the Wall Hennius Institute, which is also in Chicago. And they were selling brewery yeast in the 1990s, uh, but it was just one variety. It was the, mm. the lager yeast um, or Saccharomyces pastorianus, I think is its Latin name. Uh, and so they've been selling, you know, this particular species of yeast for a long time. As far as when we started using different kinds of yeast, I think that's really a, a kind of unique to the, the craft beer movement. I, you know, a lot of these... Uh, kind of more interesting yeast they produce kind of funky fun tasting beers you know that are associated with experimentation and, and craft beer and so uh you know there's some instances of brewers you know if you have like a farmhouse ale they kind of just let the wild yeast do their thing and it can make a really fun product uh, and then like you mentioned there's institutions like the white lab that kind of develop and breed new and discover new species of yeast and and at this point you, you know a, a brewer can call a, a laboratory and say hey we want a yeast that helps our beer taste like pineapples and and oranges you know what do you recommend what kind of yeast will will bring about those flavors and then they'll sell them a particular variety in the, church, uh, in the word uh, which is like the base of beer you know will help develop some of those flavors and so I think that's more that's a recent uh, phenomenon because I mean really like fungi are very uh, not very understood and like cutting edge science is kind of exploring like mushrooms and yeast and things like that and I think you know it, one of the great collections you you have and you were directly involved with is the oral history project with the craft brewers and uh, one one uh, interviewee uh, I think it's Eric Faber uh, he he's a yeast scientist uh, and he Faber. mentioned yeah. Matthew Faber yeah thank you uh, he has his students like go out and uh, test air samples and they find new species of yeast just in the air. And so this like kind of, this is kind of a new frontier, I think, in brewing is like, is yeast again. So it's like, we've kind of come full circle to back to being like yeast being a big deal. So it's really interesting to kind of trace the story from, from the beginning to end. Absolutely. Now you've referred a couple times to a craft beer revolution or a movement um, 
when would you date the emergence of this American craft beer scene? Yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like that's kind of something you could debate about. I mean, a lot of, you know, obviously you can look to like the 70s, there's like New Albion Brewing, um, Anchor Brewing, California, Sierra Nevada, kind of around the same time period, like the 80s. Uh, but I mean, I think a, a lot of that comes out of home brewing too. And, and home brewing really takes off in the US and then in the 1930s with prohibition and you get people kind of experimenting brewing at home. And so I think that, you know, if you want to trace the origins of craft beer back, you could maybe say that it kind of starts in the, some of the ethos of like experimentation and brewing at home really comes out of the 30s and, and prohibition, or sorry, the 20s and prohibition. Um, but I mean, generally, yeah, I, I, like when I write my chapter on craft beer, I'll probably start in, in the 70s and kind of talk about the importance of kind of the you know, the food revolution that's also going on in like Berkeley and places like that and the counterculture rejection of kind of mass produced food. So, so I think that's where I would, you know, that's where I'll probably start. Right? But I, I do think it'd be interesting to kind of explore the history of homebrewing from, from prohibition to the eventual establishment of craft beer and see if, what kind of interesting connections there are there. It is um, such an interesting story, especially there are so few American industries that have grown uh, so much in the 21st century uh, um, than American craft brewing. Um, w- one interesting sort of illustration of this uh, is when uh, Europeans started considering American beer as highly desirable. Mm-hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree because I think, you know, uh, Europeans kind of thought American beer was very bland. <laughs> And because they're just having the mass-produced lagers, and, and of course it was. And so I think you're right. It's it's kind of become like a global phenomenon. Think about the relationship brewers have their ingredients, and the way that it's kind of it, it's like this more creative approach to brewing. This like kind of you know, I, I guess um, desire to see what kind of fun things we can come up with when we just let the ingredients do their own thing and. I, and I think that that maybe has some kind of universal appeal because like you've mentioned, you know, I know there's craft beers really big in like Italy and Japan and places like that. And so it's kind of this really interesting kind of global reconceptualization of beer. And, and it's really interesting to follow and read about. Now, of course, um, American craft brewing has put unprecedented pressure on the supply of hops. Perhaps you could speak to, um, hops a little bit as an ingredient in beer, but also as a component of the beer economy? Yeah, so the hop chapter I have not approached yet. So I'm a little bit, this is the, I haven't made a deep dive yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that, you know, the really the craft beer revolution is kind of uh, founded on on the Cascade hop, which is like the the big hop that Sierra Nevada kind of introduced in their pale ale, but people really liked that kind of bitter uh, taste. And, and before that, really, American beers, they wanted to stay away as far as possible from hops. Like they would put like a little bit in their beer just to kind of give it that like beer-like taste, but they didn't want it to taste bitter. And so if you look at these trade journals, they tell you the, uh, the average ingredient that was in each batch of beer, like for the industry, and you can watch the, the quantity of hops just like slowly go down as they made the beer less and less bitter. And I came across uh, 
I'm actually in Wisconsin right now doing some research and I came across the, uh, some correspondence yesterday with someone from the, the uh, Johnny Seibel Brewing School writing to this brewery here in Wisconsin in like the 50s. And they're like, hey, we just tried your beer. It's too bitter. Like, here's a new recipe. Use less hops, use less malt, use more sugar. And so hops really fell out of favor uh, in, to these like big mass produced American beers. Uh, and so it's really craft beer that, you know, this interest in kind of the bitter taste uh, has really brought that back. As far as the kind of the economic implications of modern hop farming, uh, I'm not as well versed on that. So um, I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I can answer that question right now. But. No, no worries. No worries at all. Um, th there are really remarkable parallels with this story you've already told about yeast insofar as there is now an entire industry dedicated to breeding experimental hop varieties to introduce new and novel flavors to beers. Um, and it's, it, it, it's quite a fascinating story. Yeah, no, I think so. And, I, and again, I think it gets back to that idea of like, how can our food be creative and different and fun versus tasting the same? And, and I think that that's a much more, I think not only is it, you know, better for the consumer because we can satisfy all kind of niche things, but this idea of maybe being open to experimentation and, and accommodating to different things, you know, like I think in a world where, you know, the climate again is going to have impacts on barley growing, hop growing, uh, having the consumer be okay with different and tasting beer and not having their beer taste the same all the time. That could, that could be a useful, I think, adaptation for consumers going forward, kind of changing the way we think about what, you know, beer or food in general is supposed to taste like if we're open to different flavors, you know, that could be really helpful. I think, I think a parallel is like a banana, you know, we eat one kind of banana, but there's like thousands of varieties and, you know, the one particular variety that we eat is susceptible to disease. And so if like American consumer tastes can change to like accept variety in beer, maybe we can eat different types of bananas or tomatoes or apples or whatever. And that could be, you know, an adaptation for, for a changing climate that's going to impact our agriculture. So I really like those parallels. That's, um, that's very interesting. <laughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> There's also the aspect of the market for beer, at least in um, the United States, becoming ever increasingly more crowded and how mm -hmm. that variety is a way for a larger number of smaller enterprises to differentiate their product and perhaps carve out niches within the market. Could you perhaps, um, perhaps speculate on the trajectory of the American beer economy, particularly with regard to the fact that it's an ever more crowded space yeah, that's, that's a great question. So one thing that I, I think is interesting just from a historical standpoint is that I found that it, it, as the industry was consolidating in the 50s and 60s, you know, the, the experts in the industry were telling people not to make niche beers. They were telling them, you know, as I just mentioned, like adjust your recipe, make it not as bitter, you know, and this is like experts, objective experts telling these smaller firms, like make your beer taste more like Budweiser, more like Schlitz, Paps, you know, whatever. And so there, you actually see this like decline in diversity and, and then there was no niche, you know, firms to capture that niche market, you know, really by the seventies, there's only like a handful of brewing firms in the country. And so that really, I think, set the groundwork for uh, the foundation for the craft beer revolution, because at the same time with this countercultural food movement, 
kind of imports of uh, European and Japanese cars. Uh, there's this this all of a sudden realization that oh, like not every consumer wants you know like uh, the exact same beer, the exact same car. Like we have these niche markets, and so you know that really has allowed in a lot of ways it's like the standardization which the craft brewers like hate so much created the 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 key to their you know eventual success so it's it's kind of interesting and ironic um as far as the industry's trajectory i you know i don't know i think it's great that we have like nine thousand breweries almost or something like that in the country at this point which is i mean insane because the previous high point had been like three thousand in like the 1860s or something like that and so to really go from you know, to surpass that point in just a couple of years is incredible. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think the coronavirus has really impacted the industry. I, I saw that, you know, looking at the Brewers Association stats, you know, beer consumption shrunk quite a bit last year. Craft beers segment of the market shrunk uh, as well, which usually, you know, overall beer consumption shrinks, has been tending to shrink, shrink but craft beer consumption has still increased. Uh, but they're both down as of 2020. And so I, I don't know. I think, you know, I think uh, we continue to deal with this. Firms that have uh, canning lines, access to bigger distributor uh, distribution networks, you know, they're probably going to be the ones that are okay. Uh, the firms that primarily rely on in-person pack room sales, uh, I don't know. I feel like they have a more uncertain future, uh, but we'll see. I mean, every every moment is different in time and, uh, we have much different laws uh, for consuming and distributing beer than we did during, you know, the 1930s and, uh, and 50, 40s and 50s when the last kind of consolidation happened. So we'll we'll just have to see what happens. But I I hope the craft brewers make it through okay. And as do I, and, and perhaps one day we'll be able to raise a glass together. I know. <laughs> well, Cody, thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing your work. It's really great. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I hope uh, hope everything I said made sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And to the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, why don't you join us online? That's hagley.org, H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>